And we're live, coming at you from uh, the Redneck Recording Studio, since we can't actually be together to record fieldwork this year. It's so sad. But I'm Mitchell Hora. I'm in Iowa. I farm. I'm Zach Johnson, and we want to give a special shout out to the Walton Family Foundation for their support this season. And this Redneck Recording Studio is actually more of just a, a place in your mind, because I'm staring at you on my computer, but you're not here with me. It's like witchcraft. It's a state of mind, yeah. The the internet is on computers now, so it's pretty cool. I got internet on my computer. I think this whole internet thing is gonna be here to stay for a while. Yeah, I don't see it going away. It's definitely not a fad. And no. uh, you know what else is not a fad? Sustainable ag, boom. Right here on the Fieldwork Nailed Podcast. It. Yes. Today, uh, we're gonna do a uh, bold strategy cotton, and uh, we're gonna talk about cotton, cotton farming. Cotton, cotton farmer. I think our guest is actually Cotton Eye Joe. Cotton Eye. We have Cotton Eye Joe to come on, talk about cotton, which is a bold strategy cotton. And I don't know other (laughs) cotton jokes. I don't know where he came from or where where he (laughs) goed. Okay, fine. All right. We can ask him. We We can ask him. We could. Why do we do this at the beginning of every show? I don't know. We need Q, Cotton Eye Joe. Music, mix it in, make it happen. (laughs) Our guest today is actually a legit cotton farmer who is figuring out what works and what doesn't by trial and error. His name is Adam Chappell. Yeah, he is from Cotton Plant, Arkansas, which is just so ironic that, you know, cotton farmer, cotton plant, Arkansas, Arkansas, excuse me, pronunciation, cotton cotton plant, Arkansas. uh, He farms with his brother, Seth. Yeah. Um, Adam, it sounds like, is a speaker and a leader sharing what he is constantly learning, especially about regenerative ag and profitability. Yeah, he, uh, you know, is really focused on the farming side of things here now because he studied botany and entomology and he tried to go to work and have a real job, but he just couldn't, you know, couldn't fit the attire because he couldn't wear shorts and sweats at work. So now he comes back to the farm and he can do whatever the heck he wants. He can wear Sweet. shorts and sweatpants. You don't even have to wear those if you don't want to. Yeah, he's He's got a heck of a story here. And, and we learned a lot about cotton farming when we talked to Andy Jordan about the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol, which is basically a set of standards that farmers measure themselves by. Uh, it lets brands and consumers learn more about where their cotton comes from. Yeah, definitely go back and take a look at that episode. It was really good. Um, but want to hear you know that farmer story from Adam here. And they've got a heck of a story uh, where they started, you know, they were very normal farmers starting from a normal place, just like a lot of us. um, And we're facing near bankruptcy about 10 years ago. So we're going to really dig into that and find out what it's like to actually grow cotton. Let's check it out. Today, we've got Adam Chappell, who is a fourth generation sharecropper in Cotton Plant, Arkansas. Adam, my notes here say that sharecropping is a lot more common in the South, unlike cash rent in the Midwest, which we can dive into a little bit later. But tell us about your farm. What what does your farm look like right now? Uh, right now, it's um, starting to green up with cover crops and got a lot of water holding on it uh, just from all the rain. And we try to hold water for waterfowl and stuff like that. But uh, it's really a muddy mess over there kind of depressing really <laughs> but what type of cover crop do you have uh it's mostly uh black oats and radish and then we've got uh some mixes with black oats and 
clover and radish and stuff ahead of corn you know just different stuff for different crops but uh ahead of cotton we always go black oat and radish uh, and that's mainly for you know deep roots and weed control are the two main main things we're trying to get out of that so it's sharecropping so explain that but you got a pretty good size operation uh yeah. for what you guys got going on down down in arkansas yeah so when my brother and i came back to the farm uh my dad was farming about 2800 acres and uh over the course of about two years we jumped that up to ten thousand. just you know people going out of business or quitting and uh we just absorbed everything around us and now we're actually on the way back down we're actively trying to get rid of acres as we don't have to have them for the margin you know as we, as we become more profitable we can cut some acres back and uh so now we're down to about oh, 7600 somewhere right there but uh it's almost all fur irrigated uh and the crop share thing is you know uh we give a percentage of our gross crop to the landowner for rent and uh in most of those cases they actually share a a percentage of some of the inputs so uh it's not a bad deal it lets them share in the risk and also in the reward in the good years so uh and it's pretty common down here so the sharecropping sounds common but downsizing your operation is not something that's very common especially mm. when you're looking at okay we're going to be more profitable on the acres that we've got so we don't need to try to kill ourselves and farm all these acres all the time at no margin explain to us how did that come about and uh, cause that is way different than how most farmers are thinking about their operations and trying to uh, to grow their operations 2009 uh when we were up to that 10,000 acre mark we were we were struggling bad i mean pigweed was killing us uh and we ramped up for that very reason the margin was so slim if there was one at all we just had to have volume to stay afloat uh, so, you know, we get, we gathered up everything we could. And, uh, as we started implementing these regenerative practices, you know, cover crops and things like that, our herbicide bill went down, our irrigation bill went down, our trips across the field went down. We got rid of some employees, some equipment, those things just started piling up. So we figured out, you know, we didn't need that many acres to, to make it anymore. And, um, as, as we've been able to you know, get smaller as, as payments go away, things like that. We start getting rid of some, some acres, but, uh, you know, we just, we just are realizing, you know, margin and profit hidden inefficiencies and cutting trips that weren't there before. So. You mentioned the, the pigweed issue and how that became a big thing. And, and that was actually part of having to try to add on the acres and build onto the operation. But what really brought this all on this change that we're going to get into a little bit more with your farm? What, what made you decide to start bringing in cover crops and, and trying to reduce the passes on the field? And what made you look at the way that you farm differently? About staring bankruptcy in the face. I mean, you know, it was either a change or change on, you know, on your own terms or you're done and go get a nine to five. I mean, you know, I got a master's degree and I spent time in the lab and worked for university for a little while before I came back to the farm. And I figured out right quick, that's not for me. I, I can't be locked in a building. Uh, first of all, my dress code is not up to par. If I can't wear shorts and a t-shirt or jeans and a hoodie, I'm, 
I'm pretty well out. So that doesn't look good in the business world. And, uh, you know, just, we knew we had to do something and, and pigweed was the driver. I mean, we were killing ourselves financially trying to control pigweed. And, uh, you know, I started looking, trying to figure out how to control it with something besides chemicals and tillage. Cause that was not working. I mean, that's what was breaking us. And, uh, started looking on YouTube cause you know, nobody around here had any answers other than spray more or till more. So, uh, I found a guy on, uh, YouTube planting no-till pumpkins, organic no-till pumpkins in a big old tall crop of cereal rye. I'd never seen anything like that. And, uh, he, uh, was planting these pumpkins in June and he was supposedly organic. So I, I assumed no herbicide. There was obviously no tillage. Cause I mean, this stuff was tall as I was and it was clean. I mean, it was just cereal rye and then pumpkins. And I followed that all the way through harvest. And by the time he got to harvest, I was scraping up any money I had left to buy cereal rye and I could plant 300 acres. That's all we could gather up was 300 acres worth of seed. And that's what we started with. Um, so we planted into 300 acres of cover crop in 2010 and the rest of the farm was like we'd been doing it just cause we couldn't afford anything more than that in the fall. And man, the difference we saw in the pigweed control the first year was, it was so significant that we started cutting stuff that we thought we needed that year to afford more cover crops in the fall, trying to get, you know, as many planted as we could. And it took us about three years before we could get everything planted, but we finally got to where we were planting eight or 9,000 out of the 10,000 a year. And man, once we got brave with the planting and letting it grow, things started really changing. I mean, you know, not having to water corn, but every 10 or 12 days, you know, water cotton every 14 days when we were every five to seven on both of them, you know, just stuff like that is a big, big savings on the farm. So, so dig us a little bit deeper into like that transition process there. So you, you, you got on YouTube, found this video and you said, okay, we're going to, you didn't just right away say, yep, let's do it. Three, 300 acres. What, what else was there? Were you calling other people? Were you doing other, you know, where else did you go to get information about, yeah, it's cereal rye and how much do I need to plant? How am I going to get it on? How'd you go about some of those questions? And, and don't you find it terrifying, Mitchell, that he trusted somebody on YouTube? Oh yeah. That's just <laughs> a terrible idea. I don't know why you would ever go to YouTube to try to, uh, try to learn how to <laughs> try to uh, see how people farm. Well, it'd be kind of like y'all trying to figure out how to catch crawfish up there in Iowa and Minnesota. You know, YouTube probably be your best bet if y'all even have those things. But that's that's how foreign cover crops are down here. I mean, you know, until recently, there just weren't any. And you know, I had to even I had to ask people up north what cereal rye even was. I had to call people in Oklahoma to find out where to get it. I got it out of Oklahoma. I mean, nobody around here had a clue. You know, every time I said cereal rye an extension meeting or something everybody went straight to ryegrass and that's terrible. Don't ever plant that. And I would try to explain to them that it's not the same thing, but they didn't care. All they heard was the word rye. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, local resources were just non-existent. Even in my NRCS circles, you know, all they were focused on at that time was leveling ground drainage projects. There wasn't any cover crop, anything down here because it couldn't work in the South. You see, you know, I mean, it's, it still can't work in the South. Apparently I hear that all the time, but, uh, yeah, I, do, I mean, I just dove in that YouTube rabbit hole, came up on 
old Ray Arbacheta, as, as everybody likes to call him, and uh, Dave Brandt and Gabe Brown and all the regular people you hear about and and started going to no-till on the plains and national no-till, things I've never considered going to, you know, and uh, just started a little network, and that's how I figured out what I was doing. I had to adapt what they were doing up in y'all's part of the world down to here where nothing stops growing. So, you know, y'all can plant a cover crop in August and it'll go dormant through the winter and it'll kick off again in the spring. Well, that doesn't happen here. I mean, it's, it's 55 today and it's a cold day. It's going to be like 65 or 70 Thursday and Friday here. So, you know, this stuff's growing all the time. So, uh, it turns into a jungle quick, but you know, I just had to trial and error it. That's, that's the best way to explain it. So Adam, what I'm hearing here is you're just the complete weirdo hippie in, on the block. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and is that kind of, uh, is that kind of the vibe here still, or are there, are there some more, uh, some other progress being made with some of your neighbors and such? No, it's actually catching on pretty good down here now. Um, you know, we've, we've actually been able to build a little business around it, selling cover crop seed and kind of trying to help people get started. I mean, we don't charge any consulting fees or anything because, I wish I'd have had that when I was getting started. You know, I just try to help. And if I can find them seed, I will. And we've got a blender, so we do custom blends and stuff. So we've kind of spun off a little business there to, you know, kind of help, you know, make the make it pay. But I just help people because I didn't have any and it sucked. I mean, you know, it. Uh, we started the Arkansas Soil Health Alliance. Um, so we've got a, a group that, that's all we do is try to mentor guys and how to get started and avoid mistakes that we made. And I've made plenty, I mean, bad ones. So, cause I, you know, my brother is very quiet and conservative. He doesn't like to do a whole lot of stuff all at once change wise, but I'm the exact opposite. Like if I could have afforded to put 1500 or 2000 acres of cover crops down the first year, I would have not knowing a thing about planting into it, nothing. I just, that's just how I'm wired. And, uh, you know, so he's a good, a good yin to my yang, I guess. But, uh, I went out a lot of times and sometimes to our detriment, but <laughs> that's, that's the only way to learn. What year did you start all this? What, when did all this happen? What year was it that you scrounged up the money to get the 300 acres of rye? That was 2009, fall of 2009. So you've been at this 10, 11, 12 years now. Yeah. Still yep. learning every year, I'm guessing. Every year. Something changes every year. Are you glad that you didn't plant 2,000 acres of rye that first year? Well, looking back, no, I'm not. I wish I would have had enough to cover the whole farm. but It, it ended up that good for you? You didn't see any, any downfall to it right away? No. Uh, I actually left a lot of potential on the table the first year because I killed it so early. I was so worried about planting into it, which is what I hear all the time. You know, you can't plant into that stuff. And I thought the same thing. So I let it get about 12 inches tall, killed it, waited a month, and then planted. And I still had significant reduction in pigweed emergence. So, well, and that, that's what a lot of the, uh, you know, best management practices coming out of the universities or NRCS and stuff are what I still keep hearing is you got to terminate it two or three weeks early, two or three weeks ahead of planting, which in Iowa, you know, that'd be end of March. Mm. And, you know, our cover crop at end of March is maybe two to four inches tall. Yeah. And uh, you're terminating it that early. You're really not getting any benefit out of it. That's for sure. And no. uh, so, but what, what made you change there on, 
now planting green and, you know, walk us how, how did that process all get started? Well, we just got a little bit braver and actually it was a, a rainy spring that pushed us over the edge because, uh, you know, we couldn't get in there to kill the stuff until like the first of May and it was, you know, neck high on me and just huge and it had headed out. So it was starting to brown up. Uh, and it was too late then. I mean, we, we could either burn it off and lose everything we'd done or we could, uh, roll it down and plant you know i'd seen people online rolling it down we had an old 40 foot uh flat roller that we used to <laughs> pack rice patties with get a good firm seed bed for our rice which is dumb but we used to do it <laughs> but anyway we uh we busted that thing out and got the rye on the ground and planted into it and that was uh 2013 was the year that happened and that's when really things really took off. I mean, we planted beans and cotton into that and had some of the best beans and cotton we'd ever had, you know, and, and didn't have to do much to them as far as weed control or irrigation. I mean, I think our cotton, I mean, our beans got like a, a pre-emerge. I think we used prefix and whatever we used to, uh, you know, kill whatever was emerged, a light rate of germoxone. So that was some of the cheapest beans we'd ever produced and some of the best. And, you know, my dad retired in 2014 and that, that 2013 year when we had that, we had like 3,500 acres of that stuff that was neck high. And he was out of his mind, stressed out. And uh, anyway, he retired in 14. He said it was because of his back. And we had a grain elevator go out and owe us a bunch of money. He was talking about he didn't have time to rebuild. So he was just going to get out. But uh, I think that planting into that tall cereal rise will put him over the edge. He, <laughs> He he figured if it was going this way, he's going to, have to get out now, or he's going to pull what little hair he had left out. So, but I want to I want to jump back to where you really blew me away talking about how cover crops they don't work in the south, right? That's that's what they're telling you. Cover crops don't work in the south. Nothing ever quits growing. It isn't going to work because where I'm at up here, I constantly talk about how cover crops don't grow in the north. We don't get enough time to get them on. As soon as we're done harvesting, sometimes the grounds froze when we're still harvesting. How do you get a cover crop on? How do you get it to grow? And then by the time it dries out in the spring, it's going to take off on you or it's going to hold too much water in. It's going to keep the field wet. I think, Mitchell, maybe we've solved the Washington County thing where cover crops work. We're smack dab in the middle. Right in the middle in Washington yep. County. And that's the sweet spot. That's the only place that they can actually work. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Must be. Yeah. I don't know. You know, um, the biggest thing I hear is uh, it's going to keep my ground too wet you know, underneath all that cover crop, but man, if that stuff's green and using moisture, it, that just doesn't even make sense when you say it out loud. I mean, you know, it, it actually dries us out faster in the spring if we've got, and we get ample moisture. I mean, rainfall is not a problem down here. We're 55 to 60 inches normally. And I think we're approaching 80 this year. I mean, so we need something to help us with moisture and with our soil profile in this alluvial plain, tile drainage is not an option. Uh, you know, it's all surface drainage or infiltration. So, uh, you know, cover crops have, have helped us tremendously with infiltration. So, uh, you know, everything that, that they tell me won't work. And I mean, I believed it all once too. I mean, you know, you just don't know till you know, and some people just aren't going to try it. They're going to watch somebody else fail before they try anything or don't try anything. 
Well, I was I was just curious, what are some of the other dominant crops in your area, Adam? And are those farmers or are the farmers that are also growing cotton, are they seeing success using cover crops with these other crops that are that are being grown in the area? Yeah, a lot of them are, uh, you know, we're, so basically down here, you got four crops. You got rice, which is huge in Arkansas, cotton, corn, and soybeans. Um, the easiest one down here to get going on is soybeans. I mean, that's, and that's probably true everywhere, I guess. Uh, you know, a lot of guys are used to double cropping soybeans behind wheat and they'll no-till that, so they can relate to that one a little bit. Uh, you know, rice, you can make that work. We're making it work, but um, that's a little tougher one because that's a, you know, that's a semi-aquatic plant. There's not many cover crops that do well in that environment. So uh, if you're not on a row rice situation, if you're trying to do patty rice or zero grade, you know, cover crops may not work in that situation. I don't, I don't know. I don't have any of that ground. All mine's got fall and it's, it's row rice. So, you know, I can make it work on mine, but, um, you know, cotton, the biggest thing with cotton, uh, is everybody thinks you got to plant cotton a half inch deep. So it'll come up and, and that's true on conventionally tilled ground because our soils down here crust over and cotton is such a sissy about coming out of the ground. It just, you know, that's why they have, they invented hill drop cotton. I don't know if y'all are familiar with hill drop cotton, but they used to drop three or four seeds in a hill. So in one, in one spot, they'd drop three or four seeds. So the pushing power of those four seeds could get at least one of them out of the ground to get going because of the crusting issues. But what we found in the cover crop, you know, we've eliminated the crusting. We can plant cotton an inch or an inch and a quarter deep with a single seed and get them up because there's just no crusting down in there. So it doesn't have to have all that energy to get out of the ground. You know, cotton is a, when it, cotton cotton trying to come out of the ground is a big old plant with not a lot of pushing power. So everything's got to be just right. Tell us a little bit more, I guess, about uh, how cotton actually works for, for us that don't know anything about it. Yeah. So there's lots of different ways to skin that cat. I mean, you know, and, and we've transitioned from, you know, fully traded cotton, $600 a bag cotton down to conventional cotton. That's $120 a bag at this point. And it kind of went like, like this. So we plant this fully loaded cotton, you know, with the uh, Liberty Roundup, whatever we could get on it to control pigweed. You know, back then it was just Liberty and Roundup. Um, and as we started putting in the cover crops and figured out what we could do with weed control, you know, we were on a 38-inch spacing at this point, uh, planting. Uh, we were still hill dropping. We were going like two seeds per foot, say, on a 38-inch spacing. We just used a 1720 uh john deere planter you know nothing special and we were planting in this big cereal rye cover crop and uh we're doing good you know making good yields and uh cutting our herbicide costs but we were still their margin was still pretty slim because the cotton seed is insane six hundred dollars a bag and at their planting rates you're getting you know four and a half or five acres a bag so you know we uh we did that for a while and, and figured out we were going to try conventional cotton because it was so much cheaper per bag. So we did that in 2016 and had an outstanding cotton crop, just one of the best ones we'd ever had. So the, the myth about conventional cotton not yielding with the 
newest greatest stack stuff is, in my mind is just like the soybeans and everything else i i do on-farm trials every year and i've got university varieties that are yielding with you know super brand x whatever it, it just doesn't pay in my on my farm it might on somebody else's but i don't think the genetics are there for my farm but uh so we went the same route with cotton and we made more money on that cotton crop than we had in the last four or five combined i mean the margin was just that much better just based on changing the seed well so after that year i met a bunch of australians at one of those uh meetings it was no telling the planes and uh they started talking to me about wide row cotton you know i was familiar with skip row cotton you know plant two rows skip one row plant two rows skip one row that was pretty common down in the south uh you know guys would do that to try to slow down bowl rot and things like that in this high humidity environment but they were talking about planting a one in one out skip so 76 inch spacing basically um and cutting the planting rate to like 15,000 seeds where we were planting 40. So I just uh, kind of dug into that a little bit and tried some the first year. And there wasn't any difference between my 76-inch cotton than there was in my 38, other than the margin on the back end. The yield was the same, but the, the money I spent or, or saved on seed and, and fertilizer. I didn't have to use as much fertilizer because the root mass on those cotton plants was, I mean, they were meeting in the middle of 76 inch rows. They're, they're huge. So we just didn't need the, fer the fertilizer that we needed before. And like that cotton crop, the wide row, I put 300 pounds of AMS on it. Now, you know, so that's 60 units a in. I put that on at planting. So for context, Usually in Arkansas, the standard is between 110 and 120 units split like three times. So I cut my nitrogen in half, cut my trips by two thirds because I did it all in one shot and still took like three times the growth regulator that I needed normally to hold the cotton down and keep it reproductive because cotton's perennial. I mean, it's trying to live for multiple years. It's It doesn't think it's going to die in a year. So growth regulator is a big deal, but. After that, I was sold on 76-inch cotton. I, that's all I'm going to plant again. I mean, and and this coming year, I was talking to a farmer in uh, Tennessee named Matt Griggs. He's a cotton farmer. He still grows 38 with cover crops. Really smart guy. Uh, he's doing what he's called a strip kill. So he's banding, uh, instead of tilling, he's just banding herbicide on his cover crop early to get a space for his cotton to come up you know it's still it's still getting covered with the with the cover crop but it's uh just enough space where he doesn't have any planter malfunction so he's he's able to reduce his seeding rate even further because there's no misplacement of seed and there's no impediment from that cover crop as the cotton emerges and i'm going to do that with uh conventional cotton seed go down to like 12,000 seeds per acre. I mean, I'm looking at seeding costs for about $4 when it was, you know, 120. So, I mean, that's, that's huge savings. And you're never going to hear a seed rep tell you to plant 12,000 seeds of anything. I mean, so it's, it's that cotton system's ever progressing. And, you know, a lot of that stuff comes from those Australian guys. I mean, those guys got zero government safety net 
and they have to adapt or die. I mean, it's it's if you want to learn about efficiency, talk to an Australian because they don't have any backup plan. So is that common in your area? What you're talking about here? Are you seeing other other cotton farmers start to widen the rows and lower populations, or is that something that no. that's still? It's just you kind of jumping on it in your area. Yeah, no, it's just me and Seth. That's it. Uh, everybody else is going to look at us like we're nuts, just like they did with cover crops to start with. But that's fine. I mean, they're they're scared to change anything. I mean, fear, it's, fear drives so much stuff in agriculture. I, you know, I've listened to some of y'all's podcasts. I know y'all understand this, but, uh, you know, I'm doing similar things with rice and, you know, those reps – don't want that happening and they're telling their other customers yeah that guy's nuts there's no way he can't do that you know but like I, I hate to get off the cotton subject but there's a hybrid rice company in our area all right so they will they will tell you if they come out and you think you have a thin stand all right they'll come out and evaluate it and if you have one rice plant per square foot they'll tell you to keep that stand. Well, that equates to about two pounds of seed. Okay. Two pounds. Their recommended planting date or planting rate is 22 pounds. So figure that one out. It's okay to keep a two pound stand, but you want me to plant 22? No. And that seeds like at 22 pounds, like $160 an acre. That's wow. it's crazy. So that is nuts. So, okay. So th this wide row stuff, let's keep digging into that. And, uh, and just overall, I guess the thought process here. So it boils down to the bottom dollar. And I think, you know, a big takeaway for me on our conversation here already is, is my observation of agriculture overall, that most farmers are only looking at top line revenue. Got to maintain cash flow because you got to pay off the operating loan so you can re-up it for next year. And it's only looking at that top line revenue, maximum bushels produced, maximum pounds produced, so you can get the cash flow and continue to uh, to keep a little, you know, keep the banker happy. Yeah. And uh, but we're now you're looking at bottom line, the actual profit per acre, bottom line net profit per acre, and so reducing seed is one way to do that. But are you seeing some of your other expenses um, kind of going back up as well in terms of interceding cover crop and stuff? down into that um, wider row or, or are you guys looking at interceding or I, I suppose you have mm -hmm. enough time after harvest that interceding maybe isn't quite as big of a deal. Yeah. Most of our stuff gets planted after the combine cause we'll start combining in late August. So, you know, we'll, if we're lucky, we're done by the end of October, first week of November. And, and even if you plant in November, you still got six weeks before it gets, you know, cold enough to slow anything down. So, and then that doesn't last very long, but, uh, we have started interceding our wide row cotton because we're putting cows behind it. Uh, and to get on the amount of growth we need to bring cows in when they're cheap, uh, you know, when drought's on and grass is running out, we've got to interseed our cotton and uh, then we just graze cows through our cotton. Uh, so that's the only interceding we're doing currently, but the rest of it's just right after the planter. We'll be back with Adam about interceding after this short intermission. Okay, now more with our guest, Adam Chappelle, cousin to Dave. Just kidding. Adam Chappell. 
Here's uh, um, back to our, you know, we've been interceding down into corn, into our 60 inch row corn. So similar type of deal. And we're doing the same thing that you were talking earlier, where it's plant two, skip one. We're not doing straight up every other. We're doing plant two, skip one, finding we can maintain the yield better that way and intercede uh, down into that gap. But is there any issues with um, that cover crop impeding your harvest? Because, and explain kind of, I guess, you know, for uh, for farmers, not necessarily, you know, all cut up on how uh, how cotton harvest works, but any issues with uh, with that setup? And I guess explain that a little bit more too on how, one of those cotton harvesters actually works. Yeah. So that was one thing we were concerned about the first year we did the interseed. We were afraid the the oats that we were interseeding were going to get tall enough to stain the lint as it went through the machine. But we figured out when we interseed, we're doing it prior to defoliation. So, you know, the middles are grown up good, but underneath the plant was still shaded and it's way behind. So when the machine goes through there, there's nothing tall enough to grab and put the green stain on the lint. So basically a cotton picker, the design hadn't changed as far as the head unit for decades. Uh, now the price has gone up on the machines significantly. I mean, the first one I bought was like 120,000 and I think now they're a little over a million dollars a piece. So uh, I don't know, but uh, you know, it's just fingers, just metal fingers that have spines on them that twist and they just rake cotton through a grate and as they twist they just pull the cotton off and then they hit a rubber doffer that knocks it off the spline and it comes back around and grabs another handful i mean it's really simple simple design and fans blow it up in the basket and you know if you've got the baling machine it's just like a big hay baler on the back and if you've got a basket machine like i got just puts it in a basket and you dump it and they go take it to a tromping machine and make a big square module out of it so it's uh uh, it's pretty neat. Pretty neat. Zach, Zach, it sounds like a good uh, topic for YouTube. It, How's it already cotton? in the works, Mitchell? Oh, good deal. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll have to go visit Adam, see what he's there got go. going on down there. Come That's on down. Awesome. Come on down. Yeah. Uh, then, then we can get the crazy farmer together with the other crazy farmer that's on YouTube, and we can show everybody how crazy we are. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you a little bit more about the Australian farmers you've mentioned a couple of times and how you've really gotten a lot of advice from them. Tell us more about them, how you met them, and why do you turn to them for advice? Yeah, so I I met those guys. Uh, the first one I met, his name was Ben Smith. And uh, I started getting this number popping across my phone one summer. And, you know, I thought it was somebody trying to sell me a vacation or a car warranty or something because it was an out of country uh number and if you've ever heard my voicemail it, it specifically says if i don't recognize your number leave me a message or send me a text or i will not call you back i mean that's word for word what it says and this guy called like five times never left a message and i was just about to block the number and he finally left a message told me he was Ben Smith from Australia. He was going to no-till on the plains. He'd seen that I was on the schedule to speak and he was going on a walk about through the U S and wanted to stop at my farm before the thing. And I said, yeah, come on. I mean, he sounded like a nice enough guy. And I mean, I saw his picture. I was bigger than him. So I, I just felt like I was at low <laughs> risk. So I told him, come on by. And, uh, he ended up staying with me for three days. Uh, and we stayed on the farm, looked at dirt, looked at, you know, everything just 
and I just talked, I talked to that guy for three days about what they do. And he was asking me about what we do. And anyway, he said, I've got some more guys you need to meet. And, um, he went on, left my place, went to Oklahoma and met some guys. And then went out to Texas, went some, met some guys. And then I met him back up at, uh, no till on the plains that year. And, uh, he, uh, hooked me up with a guy named Martin hockey and down there who, uh, you know, was kind of, they, they've got a group called uh soil planters and they, they kind of help with fertility and seeding rates and, you know, configurations of planting and just all kinds of stuff. And they, it's kind of a little research group and it's all farmer led. It's kind of their version of Dakota lakes is what I, is kind of how I envision it. And, uh, uh, there's a bunch of us down here that talk to them regularly and, you know, we're on WhatsApp with them and, uh, we try to implement a bunch of things that they have tried to implement just because of cost savings and, and efficiency. I mean, they, they're, they're a very innovative group. You know. It's as another farmer, just going farmer to farmer. I, I understand like that feeling of talking to other farmers and learning what other farmers are doing and, and you know, how everybody is the same. Really. We're all within agriculture. We're all growing crops, but you can do it so much differently. So or back to on the cover crop side of things. So when you started getting into cover crop, you said you were doing cereal rye, but now you're doing mostly black oats. Yep. What, why was the change there? And, um, and I'm surprised by the lack of a lot of diversity to the blends and mixes of, of your basic cover crops that you're doing here today. Yeah. So our, our, uh, our cover crop mix has gone from straight cereal rye to 10 to 12 species. Now we're back to two to three, four at the most. It's just, uh, I don't know, just years of trial and error. You know, I, I try to plant those mixes. And when I was planting them, I'd, I'd try to see what I was seeing, you know, observing. And then I'd have a strip over here that have three things in it. And, you know, just comparatively, I, I wasn't seeing enough difference to justify the added cost. I felt like when I would add too many, I like diversity, obviously, because I've got a, for my area, very diverse crop rotation and, and, and of course, cover crops are, at least two species, usually three. But when I was up in that 11, 12 range, it seems like I didn't ever get the goal I was trying to accomplish, never got accomplished. I'd have huge amounts of insects, which I think is great. I mean, I got a master's in entomology. I love bugs. My wife hates it, but cause I'll bring one in the house to show her and I'll be <laughs> excited and she'll try to slap me and get me away from her. But Anyway, let's be honest. Do you, do you know the, like the big ones that she's the most scared of? Do you put them like right in her face as she's, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I just here. Yeah. So see, it's not all her fault. You keep poking that bear. (laughs) Yeah. And she's, she can be one. I mean, if I get a really scary (laughs) one, she's coming at me with a pan or something, but, uh, anyway, uh, so I, you know, I'd see different things and things that I liked, but my goals were weed control and, roots uh those were my two primary goals and i noticed when i crowded a bunch of species together the you know the architecture of roots would be different which is good but the the amount and the depth of rooting was not ever what it was with just one or two or three species at lower seeding rates and then when i would do the like uh, the grass which is primarily black oats with radish or something or some clover added 
the the above ground biomass would be you know two to three times what it was in the really diverse because the grass was just had the space to go i mean and and that helped tremendously on the pigweed so i'm not against the diverse blends it's just you know what what goal are you trying to achieve and i you know the two that i wanted i wasn't getting done when i was up there in the higher species mixes so well right there you mentioned clover but it doesn't sound like clover is necessarily part of uh the go-to every time or, or other types of legumes i was kind of surprised at that that um, that you're not using more legumes in the mix to try to fix nitrogen and keep pushing that synthetic fertilizer bill even lower. Well, we got a lot of soybeans in our rotation and, uh, you know, I, I, I do put legumes ahead of corn just to kind of balance that CDN ratio. And I used to use vetch, but man, vetch down here turns into a, like that monster on the, on the movie. I mean, it, it is crazy it gets so wild i mean it's it just overtakes everything else in the field you know i've planted a half pound of vetch with black oats and radish and by mid-may all you can see is vetch and you talk about a nightmare to plant into that is a that's a beast so i, I took vetch out and i went back to clovers and winter peas i like those quite a bit but um that's mostly just to kind of balance the cd in ahead of corn because i've you know, I've yelled up some corn pretty good by not knowing what I was doing. And early on, it took me a while to figure that, figure that out. I've done just a little bit of that myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, with, uh, last kind of thing on that, um, explain, explain to us, uh, the difference between the oats and the rye and, uh, and specifically why, why oats instead of cereal rye? Well, so what I noticed with my cereal rye is, from the road, it would look amazing. You know, it looked like it was fixing to be just a huge dense canopy. And it, it was until it started heading and, you know, flowering and then it was all stem. So when I'd lay it down on the ground, I could still see the ground, you know, which is bad for pigweed. Um, so if I let it go too long, it lost a lot of that leaf area and, uh, it just didn't do as good a job stopping pigweed. Now oats have big, wide, fat leaves and they never lose them, uh, you know, even when they start heading out. So when I would lay oats on the ground, I wouldn't see any soil at all versus when I'd lay cereal rye down, I'd, I, you know, I could still see some. So uh, I'd, I can plant lower rates of oats and get better ground coverage than I could with cereal rye. That's, that's why I transitioned to oats. Uh, you know, it's not anything special about the oat other than that. I'm just taking notes over here because I find this very interesting. It seems like cereal rye is such a big, such a big thing that people turn to when you talk about cover crops, at least in our area. It just kind of always comes back to you can't go wrong with cereal rye. You know that that that's kind of just the go to. Well, and it's a it's a great cover crop and it's it's probably a lot more winter hardy than uh, black oats. I don't think black oats would survive up there where you are. Um, I actually think some guys in Missouri have pushed the limit with those not far north of me. Um, but I don't believe you can kill cereal rye with a, with a freeze. I mean, I, I, oh, Derek Axton, I talk to him all the time. He grows cereal rye. So, I mean, if it'll live up there, I believe it'll live about anywhere. Yeah. Derek Axton is up in uh, Canada. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, no, I think that's the main thing, you know, with the cereal rye is just the winter hardiness that, yeah, 
for the weed control, it does a pretty dang good job. And uh, you still get quite a bit of coverage there. And, and we've really been able to see, you know, cutting back on uh, on those seed banks and and really getting our, taking care of our pigweed problems. Water hemp is our, our main pigweed that we're worried yeah. about. But um, yeah, they, uh, the ability for those oats to overwinter and black oats are a little bit different than oats that most farmers uh, would think about. It's a, it's a different variety um, that is a little bit more winter hardy, but I think that's probably the main reason you know, is that, yeah, it's going to probably die uh, when you hit a frost and it's yep. uh, not going to quite get the winter hardiness that we need up here up, up further north. Yep. Yep. No, I, I, like I said, I started with cereal rye and it did a great job, but uh, I just, uh, for my environment, the, the blackouts just cover the ground so much better. Uh, you know, that's, that's why I transitioned, but, but, you know, when we started with cereal rye, I mean, it, it had a huge impact on our pigweed populations i mean it really knocked them down and yeah i think our university is saying there's some allelopathic effects and stuff and that could be um but shading that's the biggest thing if you can shade them out you got them whooped so what was it like when you started getting into this dealing with landlords you know um most of my landlords are 100 percent on board i got a couple that uh don't like it because it is not the way it's been done. And, you know, they think I'm not getting planted early enough sometimes. And, you know, but if they, if they look back and see what kind of rent they're getting from me, plus the reduction in the inputs, they're probably making more money on, on my ground than they are everybody else's. But all they worry about is, you know, that, that top, that top yield, you know, if, if, if tenant B beat me by five bushels, you know, they don't even account for what they had to spend fertility wise and all that. All they know is they get, I got beat by five bushels. So, you know, I got a few that are still on the fence or just against it. And the ones that are against it, I just, I've either let go or I just keep, you know, no tilling and do it anyway. Do it. Yeah. Doing the best I can with it. So, so that we, uh, let's tie this into like the cotton trust protocol side and some of the, some of the data and the reporting and some of those kind of things. So not only, you know, reporting and building up that relationship with your landlord, but also just building up that relationship with the buyers and stuff like that too. Are you guys participating in any of those kind of programs or any other kind of uh, sustainability initiatives? Yeah. So our uh, cotton specialist, Bill Robertson, he's all over this stuff. Uh, He is uh, in the university system, but his one of his main focuses is the sustainability and, you know, your production footprint and all that stuff. And I, I haven't gotten into any of the stuff yet. Cause I'm still kind of watching and seeing what's what, uh, cause based on what I can tell our production system exceeds all the, the parameters around the trust protocol and all that. I mean, cause we're using, you know, a third of the fertilizers, everybody else we're using half the water or less, you know, herbicides, half, seed you know 15 percent. i mean it's it's uh it's just a lot less so I, i'm not worried about meeting the parameters whichever one comes out on top the what i'm kind of waiting on is to see you know which which what the companies are going to adopt i mean you know there's a huge push for it in the denim industry right now like wrangler and levi's and all those people are clamoring for this cotton because they're 
their consumers want it. I mean, it's it's no different than me selling non-GMO corn and soybeans to our local chicken plant and them selling non-GMO chicken to, you know, somebody at Trader Joe's or something. I mean, it's the same deal and, and people want that in their cotton and I'm just waiting on somebody to offer the right, the right deal. So I know they're working on it. So wish they'd come on with it. Let's jump over to rice here for a second. So my understanding is that you're looking at getting into scaling rice a little bit differently by looking at some of the stuff you see in Sri Lanka and Madagascar. Is yeah. that right? What can you tell us about the, the SRI or the system rice intensification, what that's all about? Yeah. So this is another looking outside the U S for inspiration. So, you know, we, we reduced our seeding rate on cotton because of the Australians, right? So I started somebody, somebody read an article that I did talking about the reduction in seeding rate on cotton. And they said, do you grow rice? I said, I do. They said, you need to check out this, uh, SRI program that is in the, some French guy. I can't remember the name. I've read a bunch of stuff on him, but French guy, whatever <laughs> he developed this deal in, uh, in, uh, madagascar they were growing rice and the people you know that's like 80 percent of their food staple and they were growing rice and not making enough to feed themselves much less sell so this guy was trying to figure out how to make it economical for them to grow better rice and uh the guy that is kind of taking it further is a professor at cornell and uh anyway so in uh madagascar now sri lanka those are they're making better rice per acre than we are in the u.s with hand labor and conventional rice so and they're doing it for nothing i mean and it's a whole different production system right i mean everything's hand labor i mean they're doing it on an acre patty maybe one family will work an acre right so you know i can already hear because i'm giving a talk on this not too long from now i can already hear the big rice growers in the audience saying well we we farm two thousand acres of rice we can't hand plant patties you know whatever but it's not about the hand planting and the hand weeding it's about the seed spacing and how they control the irrigation that's it and those are two things we can do here and get the same results like this year we had some trials where we planted four pounds of this uh, rice hybrid we had trials from two pounds to 12 pounds all the way up to the 22 pound standard rate. The four pound rate yielded as much or better than every other rate in the trial. Four pounds. So, you know, it was a late planted trial and the actual, you know, yield per acre wasn't that good on any of them because September sucked. It was clouds and hurricanes. So we didn't finish that rice crop, but it was a trial. But the bottom line is the four pound was equal to or better than every other treatment in that at a much less, you know, cost per acre to produce. And this is the same thing they're doing. They're, they're just plugging one seed per foot, you know, by hand. Well, we, we've got the capability to pl plant that precisely. We can plant one seed per foot with the equipment we have today. There's nothing saying we can't. And if, and if we, you know, they, they do quality control on their rice. They do it very primitively. They take their rice, they put it in water. The ones that float, they throw it off. And then they've got the most dense seed to plant. Well, 
We've got machines that'll do that very thing. Those suction separators will take the least dense seed off the top. You're left with the best. So, you know, you can increase your emergence. They're increasing their emergence by 30% just by floating seed in a basket of water. I mean, and it's just arrogance for us to not take direction from countries like that. I mean, you know, they're making 275, 280 bushels of rice per acre while we're making 180 to 200. And they're doing it with hand labor and, and hybrids that we hadn't used in 30 years, you know? So that's, that's, I'm trying to design a system here around that. That's pretty awesome. Explain on the, um, you know, the row rice versus like a normal patty that we all kind of think about when we're, when we hear, you know, hear somebody talking about growing rice. So explain kind of that concept here, here real quick. So I know y'all are familiar with fur irrigation. You just water down the, down the row, whatever. Well, that's all row rice is. We plant it on a bed and we water down the middle, just like corn or cotton or beans or anything else we do around here. Uh, you know, the difference is the water use, you know, patty rice takes a lot of water, you know, and maintaining a flood on rice is just for weed and disease control. It's not because rice needs a flood on it. You know, there's plenty of upland gr rice grown in the, in the world, uh, and grown a lot better than we do here. Uh, it's just, uh, people rely on that flood for weed and disease control. So, you know, if you can replace that flood with a, a thick layer of cover crop for the same, cause it keeps the soil borne diseases from splashing on the rice, which is where most of them come from. And it keeps the weeds from coming up. So if you can do that with a plant instead of grass, I mean, instead of water, then, you know, your savings are huge because your pumping is, you know, for me to maintain a flood and cotton plant, I'm pumping six days a week, turning the wells off one day, turn them back on Monday and I pump through Saturday. That is a lot of water use. And, you know, that's a finite resource. I mean, it's, it's a plenty abundant down here. I mean, we hit water at like 15 feet, but it's not going to be there forever. You know, I won't ever have to water it, worry about running out, but my kids and grandkids might. So, you know, I'm just trying to do what I can and, and save money at the same time. So that's why we transitioned to row rice. Have you started integrating some livestock into your operation? Talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we kind of did it the same way we do everything else. Just, uh, not knowing anything. And, you know, I don't know that that isn't an advantage. Um, so, you know, the first year we did livestock, I met a buddy up in uh Greenbrier. His name's Michael Dickey. I met him at some soil health stuff. He does wonderful stuff with rotational grazing. He's all cattle, you know, he plants cover crops, you know, does the holistic management, you know, the best he can and moves them around. And, and I learned a lot from him on that. And I, I told him one time I wanted to get some cows down on my place. And, uh, so we worked up a plan and anyway, I started going to the sale barn up there and, uh, I, I just sat up there and watched, you know, for a while. Cause I, I hadn't been to a sale barn since my grandpa went way back in the day when he had cows, you know, we hadn't had cows 40 years. And, uh, <clears throat> Anyway, so I started watching how this, all this works. You know, these lots of cows come through and these old guys bid on them, whatever. You know, just your typical auction. But I noticed every Monday when I was there, there was a group of farmers setting up the top or ranchers, whatever you call them. 
And they sat in the same chairs every time. Everybody knew them. And they were there every Monday religiously. So I thought, I need to buddy up with them. They, I can learn something from those guys. You know, I need to partner up there. So I put on my best, uh, my best version of myself, went up there and kind of buddied up and started sitting with them every Monday. And they were excited, man. A young guy trying to get into cattle farming, you know, they were all ready to help me telling me what I needed, all this stuff I need to buy. And and I'm just thinking there with my in-brain calculator, adding all this crap up that they're telling me I need to buy. And I'm like, maybe I don't want to get into this. But anyway, I sat there with them and watched them buy cows and watch what they were buying. And uh, I finally got my money up and my brother gave me the go ahead. You know, he said, all right, well, if we're going to do it, let's do it, but don't buy too many. So we settled on 50. That's what, that was my max. I was going to buy 50. Well, <clears throat> I came in there that day and I was like, all right, guys, today's the day. I got my checkbook ready to go. They said, all right, there's some good looking cows back there in the crowd. We're going to fix you up. So we sat there and we watched this lot come out. Beautiful animals, you know, just great build, filled out, going for like $9.50 a head. And they're telling me to buy those cows. And I'm looking at them thinking, well, you know, where, where's the money for me? I don't, these things look like they're ready to go now. I don't. I don't see any money for me and I, and it's really more than I had to spend. So I told them that was a little too high. I need to, you know, I'm just getting started. I need to buy something a little cheaper. They said, Oh, we get it. We get it. You're just getting going. We'll find you something. So we watched a few more lots come out. This next lot comes out. They look a little bit rough. They're going for like 700 and these guys are just going crazy. Now that's a deal. You, you got to get those. I mean, for that cow for 700, that's a deal. And I said, well, uh, it's still a little bit, still a little bit rich for my blood. Well, at this point, they're starting to get a little worried. You know, they're, they're like, I don't know about this guy. He must not have brought much money, <laughs> you know, and I was talking about buying 50 cows. Well, this group of cows that comes out later is barely walking rib bones, hip bones, just stumbling around. Just, I'm talking about the ugliest thing you've ever seen. And, uh, I told the guys, I said, those are the ones I want. And they looked at me like I was the dumbest person they'd ever seen. They said, boy, those won't make it back to cotton plant. They'll be dead before they get there. I said, but think about how much money I can make if they don't die. And they just started looking at me like I was crazy. Well, they opened the bidding up at like 500 ahead. Nobody said a word. It got down to 200 and I finally bid. And uh, a guy down in front of me, he bid them up to 250, I guess, just to see if I was serious. And I got them for like 260. So I got this lot of 40 cows for $260 a head, and I took them home. And the guy was right. Two of them died on the way home. They didn't make it. But I took those cows, and with the help of that uh, Michael Dickey, and we rotate, I had some cover crop planted, some big summer blend, and then I moved them off onto my row crops. We rotationally grazed them and, and did a little supplementing when it was wet, you know, with, I, I got some cold sweet potatoes and cotton trash from the gin, you know, when I couldn't have them out on the field cause it was too wet. And I took those cows from damn near dead to $1,100 a head sale price that April. So I went from 260 to 1100 on my first try. Now I hadn't done that good since cause I hadn't found cows that bad yet, but, uh, that was a home run and I was tickled to death. Only lost two. So the mortality rate wasn't that bad. But it was uh that's that was how we got into cows. I just 
I didn't know anything about them, never hired a vet, never did any of that. I didn't know what to do. And it's probably a good thing because I, I probably could have ate up a bunch of profit by doing all that stuff. But, you know, we ran out of that grass and when it was too wet, I had to calve some feed and I called those guys up there to see what to do. And they were trying to sell me this big expensive hay and all this crap. And I called a, a guy uh, in the mountains that had a few cows and sheep and he said i feed them cotton trash i'll go get a load of cotton trash and they love it so that's what i did i we got sweet potato growers they had cold sweet potatoes selling them cheap because they were done for the year so i got that gin trash man it was like crack cocaine for those things they just followed me anywhere if i was pulling that wagon with that stuff in it that is awesome so this was in like what 2019 no that was uh see that would have been earlier in that yeah, seventeen eighteen. That would have been seventeen eighteen. Yeah, yeah. seventeen eighteen winter. Yeah. No, that was an awesome story. And uh so okay, so now or how many cows are you at now? This year we actually we don't we don't have any at, at this point this year. We're gonna try some sheep. Uh, we didn't get enough grazing uh planted. We didn't get any cotton planted this year because of the wet spring and our cover crop, we just didn't have enough forage to bring cows in this fall. So we'll have enough forage to bring sheep in in February. So we're going to have a two-month turnaround on them. We're going to start sheep in February and get rid of them in April. So it'll be our first foray with sheep. But uh, it's something I've been wanting to try anyway. And, you know, it just kind of worked out. This will be the year to try it. But uh, hopefully next spring will be better. We can get our cotton planter, get back on our regular, you know, our regular program and bring cows in. But uh, last year we had uh, 75 we were shooting for a hundred, but we could only five, find 75 in our startup price range. And, you know, we were, we were wanting to go to 150 this year, but we just didn't get anything planted to get them. So we're going to try to do a couple hundred head of sheep and see how many of those we can bring in and sell. Have you been able to take the livestock and, and work them into the farming operation itself on the crop side of things? I mean, are you feeding them cover crop? Are you using the manure as fertilizer? What, I mean, how, do, how does the livestock, other than being a fun new venture, how does it tie into the rest of the operation? Yeah, so what we normally do is we'll plant some wheat and then plant a summer forage behind the wheat crop, and we'll grid graze that as we're harvesting and letting our cover crops grow that we interseeded. And then as soon as we can get them off of the summer forage and moved into our row crop fields, we'll start paddock grazing them through our, through our row crop fields. So... You know, it's not enough to make a big impact per acre because we don't have enough cows and we got too many acres. But, you know, we'll we'll be able to do a couple hundred acres a year where we'll paddock graze and keep them tight and let them do their business across that little bit. And and uh, we had a 25-acre patch this year that we, we grid grazed and had corn on, and we didn't put any fertilizer at all on that corn just to see what we got from the cows. And we were only about 30 bushels behind on that field from where we were on our, you know, fully fertilized program. So we got some good out of those cows. So, so the, so beyond the sheep, what are some of the other uh, things that you want to try or some of the new things that you're thinking about um, new, uh, new systems you want to bring onto the farm? Oh man, that's a long list. Uh, so I'm trying to get in with that. There's a, a uh, co- I don't know what you call it, a cooperative uh, meat processing deal up in Missouri. And I'm trying to get on their list as one of their growers. I, I want to do, uh, I know y'all talk to Malk all the time 
over in uh, Indiana with those chicken tractors he's got. Man, I could do that on wide row cotton so easy. And I'm wanting to do some of that, but I don't have an outlet for chickens down here. I mean, I don't have an outlet for any meat. I mean, we only got a couple of processors in this state and the waiting list is, you know, long because there's just not enough livestock down here to, to support a lot of processors. So I'm trying to get in with that co-op up there. And if I can get in with them, then I'll, I'm going to do the, a few chicken tractors and stuff on my wide row cotton and, you know, stuff like that. I just, I just want to do stuff like that. I mean, it just makes sense, you know, to, to integrate an animal to do a job, you know, eat all the weeds in there and, and then sell the animal. It's just, it just makes sense. So. That's awesome. That's uh, it's interesting that, you know, the, the livestock side of things, though, sounds like what you really want to keep expanding. Yeah, yeah. So, Even more than more than like different crops or stuff like that and diversifying that into the operation? You know, the different crop thing, we, we did produce one time and, you know, we tried to expand that. That's a cutthroat game. I'll never do that again. There's there's so much. Yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole different podcast right there. But anyway, produce is out for me. Uh, and I'm limited on what I can grow crop-wise by my outlets. Like I would love to incorporate sunflowers down here. I think they would do wonders for the soil. And I think we could grow some tremendous sunflowers, but there's nobody here that takes sunflowers, you know, uh, grain sorghum we grow on occasion, but that's only when the market's good. Cause otherwise nobody's taking grain sorghum down here. Uh, you know, so outside of, you know, wheat, cotton, corn, rice, and beans, that's pretty well your, your options down here you know so we try to rotate with those and then fill in the gaps with cover crops and, and we do grow some uh some barley for seed and some black oats for seed and things like that but that's just a real small you know couple hundred acre deal every year but uh no the livestock things where the potential is that i think um so that's what that's our plan is to downsize our row crop acres and integrate more livestock on the acres that we you know, keep back and, and try to build a full system on a smaller amount of acres. You know, my papa always told me I needed a farm that I could work, not one that works me. And right now I'm still in the it working me phase. So I got a little ways to go. You talked about the markets there. I think that's not uncommon. You know, when you're talking about your, your cotton, corn, soy, um, and rice down in your area, I would say like in my area, it's corn and soybeans. And and mm. people ask me all the time, why don't you grow wheat? Why don't you have oats? Why don't you, you know, what about sunflowers or peas or this and that? In my area, all they want is corn and soybeans and sugar beets come relatively close, but we can't grow them right on our ground directly. So markets are a, a limiting factor a lot of the time, something that people at least outside of egg don't yeah. necessarily think about. No, it's not just as easy as planting something different and harvesting. I mean, you got to have somewhere to go with it. I mean... It's, uh, if you don't, then you just wasted your time. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but so we want to, uh, jump back and ask a clarifying question on the chicken tractors. So, so I'm kind of familiar with, you know, with it, but explain, I guess, you know, it, the, uh, that concept and explain, I guess, how you're going to get these chickens to actually, um, fit down in between the rows and, and how you're going to move them and things like that. 
Well, yeah, first, so, I want to say when you mentioned that, the first thing I did, I got another computer here. I Googled chicken tractor. <laughs> I don't see any John Deere chicken tractors. So no, no. I'm waiting to hear what you're talking about. No. So, you know, my plan was just to buy or just build them, you know, make some sleds, get a pipe bender and get some hoops and, uh, you know, put a water and a little, uh, you know, feeder for oyster shells and stuff they need put an egg box on there. And I used to keep chickens just for fun around the office. You know, I had a coop and keep 50 head of chickens just so I could go mix a whiskey drink, watch them scratch in the dirt. I mean, it's just good therapy, but, uh, that, that thing. So I, I just, obviously I'd match it to that 76 inch row where they could, where they could feed from cotton stock to cotton stock and clean up anything in between. And I'd just move them however often it took for them to chew that stuff to the ground. So, you know, take a, side by side out there and pull them up a little bit and move over to the next row, do the same thing. I mean, or you could probably do it by hand. I mean, the ones I've seen you could do by hand if you, you know, if you're just inclined to do it that way. So this is obviously not something that you're going to incorporate over 7,000 acres. Oh, no, 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 no. This is something I want to do like, you know, on a, on a 40 or something, just, you know, try to try to supply that co-op with some, with some, pasture or free range chicken whatever they call it i don't know what they call it and uh start my chickens yeah start my neighbors up too i mean you know just put it right on the highway and see what they say so and i guess dig a little bit deeper that it's basically it's a little cage for these chickens or it's it's fenced in so that predators and stuff can't get to them and so they kind of stay where they need to be but it's going to be 70 inches wide and what, maybe a couple foot tall, how long are you going to make this contraption? Six or eight feet, probably. And, uh, I'd make it tall enough. I could stand up in it. So I'd make the hoops at least, you know, six and a half feet. Cause you know, I'd, I'd have to get in there and take the chickens out and, you know, water them and all that. I mean, you could do all that from the outside, but I think it'd just be easier if I could get in there with them. But, uh, yeah. Get in there with your whiskey and hang out with the, with the chickens. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just get me a lawn chair and just watch them. <laughs> <laughs> but so in so the name uh, the chicken tractor is a little like misleading that it's not an actual tractor. It's it's more so it's a little box and you're yeah. gonna move them with a tractor or with a four wheeler or something like that. Yeah, and I don't, I don't drag it along the ground. Yeah, I don't know who came up with chicken tractor. It just it just caught on. You know, that's just what everybody calls them. I guess that's all I've ever heard them called. But uh, you know, I those chickens that I keep around the office, they're full on free range. And, uh, I replace a lot of them cause hawks and coyotes and everything else get them. But, you know, I just go to the tractor supply or something, buy some new ones. You know, they're not, not that big a deal, but, uh, if I was going to do it for more than just, uh, therapy, I'd, I'd try to protect them a little better and, you know, try to recoup on my investment a little bit. So someday maybe we will have 600 chicken power tractors. Yeah. The maybe. horsepower. We'll, we'll transfer it to chicken power. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so that so, the chickens don't drive these tractors themselves. Not unless they're real talented. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the kind of chickens you got to get. Those are the ones that you got to keep in the herd and, Call out the other ones. That's right. You put those on salary and just keep the other ones on hourly. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, we're, we're going to have to start kind of getting this wrapped up, even though this talk has gone really quick. And, uh, and there's so much more we could dig into, obviously. But 
Um, but any other kind of like parting parting thoughts and stuff like that. So Adam, you know, as you're, as you're talking with other farmers in your area, or obviously now, you know, you've done enough speaking and gotten enough awareness and stuff from scale, you know, what, what are your uh, other takeaways to other farmers, but also takeaways to the rest of the cotton industry and stuff as well. And uh, some parting thoughts. Well, you know, I've got a bunch of, bunch of thoughts that I could air on the cotton, uh, Ag, the ag, the you know supplier side of the industry, but I, I just tell farmers at the end of my talks and stuff, you know, just forget everything that you know because everything you know has been told to you by a salesman. Think about where your information's coming from, you know, and I, it's easy for me to say because I fell I, I fell victim to the same traps. I mean, every magazine, every every YouTube video I watch now has an advertisement on the newest product and then, you know, and then they tell you how much you need to plant and all this, but you know, I just go back to that rice example, you know, they're telling you to plant 22 pounds, but an acceptable stand is two pounds. You know, it does not take a brain surgeon to figure out there's something fundamentally wrong with that. And it doesn't take a lot of digging back in some old literature to find out that cotton does not have to be planted at 40,000 seeds per acre to make a cotton crop. It just doesn't. Now you're never going to hear a salesman tell you that because that's, you know, they're not going to sell a lot of seed if they start spouting that, but you know, just always just tell them, be careful where you get your information from and be open to ideas that, you know, when you look at them may not make sense, but, but when you dig into it, it can just like that, rice in madagascar and sri lanka i mean when you see those guys out there barefoot plugging in one rice plant at a time you're thinking this does not apply to me but when you break it down just to the principles of what they're doing it absolutely applies to us and it can and it can make a huge difference for our operation but you just gotta be willing to just like i say to forget what you know and try to learn something new that's that's good advice for for everybody in general in life i think that you know keep learning keep trying to figure something new don't pretend you know everything or don't think that you know everything hey i can tell you if farming humbles you quick i i learned that i don't know anything every single year i mean every time i think i got something figured out mother nature will uh kick me where the sun don't shine so and i gotta start over so it's uh it's common but it's having fun while we're doing it. That's right. That's right. Everybody loves getting kicked where the sun doesn't shine. So it's always fun. <laughs> I don't know that maybe that's your thing, but I don't particularly <laughs> enjoy it. <laughs> Adam, this has been great. Good yeah, man. Up with you. I'm sure I'll, I'm sure I'll see you around here sometime soon. Yeah. Whenever the meetings kick back off, I'm ready to go. I'm tired of doing zoom meetings all the time. Our guest Adam Chapel is a fourth generation farmer in cotton plant, Arkansas, heck of a uh, fun interviews that there zach what'd you think i'm still kind of fascinated by chicken tractors and how exactly they reach the pedals yeah <laughs> chickens that can drive tractors is just like such a cool innovation like i can't believe somebody didn't think no, about it's that crazy yeah now we can we can raise chickens so we get the eggs we get the meat and we get the labor out of them wait i'm hold on i'm just now thinking of this isn't the movie chicken run like literally a movie like actually about this where the chickens take over and like 
That's that's must be where these chickens learned it from. They watched the Chicken chi- Run. Now it all makes so much more. It, it makes. There's sense. a movie about the chickens taking over. Is it like? Uh, yeah, is it like Terminator run. where the chickens they become self-aware and they start taking over the world? No, it was one of those like claymation movies. You got to check it out. It's a it's a like a kids movie. But no, it's hilarious. I, I'm, I'm not. Oh, yeah, you got to look it up. I'm busy on TikTok. Somebody send Zach Chicken Run so he can check it out. You got to watch it. I haven't seen that movie in a long I'm gonna time. I'm going to Google but... it right now. Do an image search on Chicken Run. All right. You got to check it out. All right. You you check that out. And I'm going to finish up the episode so we're not holding up our listeners all day. But, but no, thanks, Adam, for being on. A guy that, um, that I really admire for thinking outside the box and implementing regenerative ag at scale. Really going to be excited to continue to watch Adam as he expands and, and implements his ideas over the coming years. And you know, he's legit because he has that cool Arkansas accent. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. it's, and a, heck, and of a, a beard. heck of a beard and he likes to share what he's learning. So if you look for him on the internet, especially on YouTube, you will be able to hear more about his farming practices. His last name is pronounced chapel, but it's spelled with two P's and two L's like C H A P P E L L. Great spelling, Zach. That was awesome. <laughs> uh, you might also want to look uh, for our episode that we did about cotton with Dr. Andy Jordan. That show focused on some new standards that Andy developed for cotton farmers to show the industry how to be as sustainable and profitable, keyword, as sustainable and as profitable as possible. It was also really fun to hear from Adam about how the networking works for him and how powerful that is. And there we go back to that word networking. And he's working with farmers that are even in other countries to try and figure out how to do things a little bit differently. Cause he doesn't have that support system right in his backyard, walking him through exactly what he needs to do. Now uh, it sounds like it's time for a listener voicemail, Zach. Let's see what we got here today. Hey guys, uh, this is Jim from Ohio. Really enjoy the podcast. Um, I think you guys do a great job and you're doing a great service to the industry. Um, Quick question for you. I farm about 100 acres. Um, First generation farmer. I'm trying to get into the business. Uh, Obviously dealing with some capital constraints. Um, Any any advice on how to best get into the business, um, avoiding niche markets, you know, it's a part-time gig, but, uh, any advice on that, uh, it'd be appreciated again. Thanks. Enjoy the podcast. Jim, thanks for calling in. It's difficult. You know, capital is a tough thing to come by for, for every farmer because, you know, land is expensive and, uh, machinery is expensive and it can be tough to get into. Um, you know, interest rates are low right now. That's one of the things that a lot of farmers are doing is making sure they're taking advantage of lower interest rates and trying to keep some cash on hand. That's one of the things I would look at right now. I, Mitchell, you got any any advice here? Anything? Yeah. Yeah, Zach. First thing that came to mind for me is definitely looking into a beginning farmer loan. You'd go yeah. to your local FSA office. Um, there, There are multiple different boxes that you have to be able to check. Um, in order to qualify for that money. So I'm not sure, you know, Jim, if you're going to qualify for that, but definitely go check out FSA. And then like Zach said, I mean, local, uh, the local bank. Um, 
But I think for right now too, the big expense being the equipment side of things, Zach, like you were saying, and I think to get going, it's finding somebody, maybe finding a, a local older farmer that is trying to kind of phase out of the business, might be able to kind of buddy up with them, help them out on their operation and uh, be able to rent some equipment in return um, or partnering up with, with somebody else who's trying to get into the business and you can get the planter and they can have the combine and you can kind of be able to work back and forth. Uh, that's actually something that we've done on our own family farm. So might be able to uh, be a couple of different ways to get creative with working with other people and utilizing a couple of those outside sources of capital. That's it for Fieldwork today. Our show is produced by Annie Baxter with lots of great help from Lori Stern, Amy Mayer, Mike Langseth, and Corey Suzuki. Christian Schmidt runs our social media, LA Lyons does our marketing, and Lauren Humper is our project coordinator. And Eric Romani mixes our show. Be sure to check us out on social media. We are at Fieldwork Talk on all the usual channels, and we'd love it if you wrote us a review to help other people find us. Yeah, and don't forget that we love hearing from you. So definitely give us a call with your comments or questions. Um, and if you have you know, that conservation culture in your area, any success stories, not just questions, but we wanna hear those stories too. So call us up, leave us a voicemail, 651-228-4810. That's 651-228-4810. Thanks for listening. We will catch you next time. Until then, Fieldwork Podcast out. We're changing our outro music. <laughs> can't just use our normal. Can't just use no. our normal theme song. Cotton episode. We got a cotton. Where did you come yet? from? Where did you go? Where did you come from? Cotton <laughs> Joe.